Welcome to episode 133. Today, Dr. Denise Furlong shares how we can celebrate the voices of newcomers. Welcome to the Teaching Multilingual Learners podcast. This podcast celebrates teachers who answer the calling to serve multilingual students and their families. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. Let me read the description from Dr. Furlan's book. Educators can feel intimidated admitting that they need to learn more about ways to help students. Here, they will find easy to implement and non-judgmental support that busy teachers can put into place from the first moment they pick up this book. You'll learn things such as how to manage the first days and first weeks to assist newcomers in adjusting academically, emotionally, socially to their new school and class. We'll also learn information about how will teachers help academically engage these students. These were just the first two points in the description and there's so much more. Now on to today's podcast. It's my fortune today to interview and to host Dr. Denise Furlong. She just wrote a book called Voices of Newcomers, Experiences of Multilingual Learners. Dr. Furlong, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to to connect with you and to speak with you. Yes, they have so much more than they might be able to express at that time. And it's up to us to provide them that space and, and that, you know, safe, that safe experience. Yes. And I've learned so much and, and I still learn so much from, from these families, from these students, from, and from the teachers. So let's start there. Could you tell us about a story that, uh, of you working with a newcomer or their families or their teachers that has really helped shape your practice? So, you know, I mean, every one of us, obviously. (laughs) But, you know, um, I can think of one, one student who arrived in, and I'm in New Jersey, so arrived in the school in which I taught um, while we were virtual learning. And it was really difficult to connect with students. Um, Initially, I I really, you know, unpopular opinion, I actually feel that the virtual learning um, was a safe space for a lot of my multilingual learners. And and I would defend that, you know, Um, but this student came and um, refused to put his camera on. And and of course I respected that because I I understand There's, there's a lot of feelings going on there. So the student came, we found that he was not exactly an unaccompanied minor, but he was here with just his older brother who was in his early 20s. So they were trying to navigate this new country, this new system, this new school, you know, and and there was a lot for them to work through. Um, 
when we finally did go back in person, uh, I, I kind of specifically went in that day with, you know, my mask on and my mask had hola, you know, in there. So, so I knew that my, my new students would kind of know that I was somebody that they could connect with. So he actually came right up to me on that first day. I had no idea who he was because I had never seen his face. And, um, he, he was able to kind of navigate that way, making those connections. So he had the connection with me and, and his ESL teacher. And also we were, you know, uh, giving him, you know, providing him with the opportunity to make those connections with those students who also share his language. Um, there was one point where, and again, probably, you know, a very interrupted education. So there was some points where he was really difficult, um, had a lot of difficulty and really struggled academically and even within his native language. And, and he would make comments to me about feeling stupid, which breaks my heart. Um, and then I said to him, I said, you know what? This is temporary. You're fine. You're going to learn. You're you're going to be a, you know, a, a bilingual adult and how many people would love to be in a bilingual adult. And you know what he said? He goes, I know three languages. Once I know English, I, I speak an indigenous language as well. And I just said, oh yeah, you've got to own that, you know, and, and your struggles that you're having now, you'll be fine. You know, and, and it's difficult and it's difficult when these newcomers come and they're in the middle school or they're in the high school and, you know, there's, they have these expectations of themselves and teachers have these expectations of them that might not be reasonable. But um, just as a note, we later found out that he really has limitations with his sight and his hearing. So that is something that we didn't know. And, and we were able to kind of work with the community, work with his brother, trying to get him some the support they need, you know, um, and, and welcome them. Well, the fact that he came to you right away the first day of in-person instruction, it was like, hi, hi. The fact that yes. he did that meant that you made, you had a connection with him. And even though you didn't see his face, he felt safe enough to come to you. Yeah. And, and, you know, um, I think that's always the first step. You I know? think when we work with multilingual learners, I think about this quote, I don't know who said it, but it's, um, don't count the day by how much you harvest, but by how much, how many seeds you sow. Right. And it's all about us sowing seeds every single day. And we might, we might not see the harvest yet, but our job is to sow seeds. And, you know, like we were talking about, like, you know, I'm getting emotional, <laughs> but it's those seeds and, and sometimes we'll never know. And sometimes maybe we'll run into them at, you know, the coffee shop in, in five years and they'll speak to us in English. And one of the students we talk about, you know, I say we, because it's my former colleague, it's, it was one of our students um, in the book. Uh, my colleague, Sarah, ran into him probably like five years ago and he was a, a waiter in town and speaking in English and, and he, you know, uh, just those seeds, those seeds flourished. And those seeds are relationships and connections. For sure, for sure. Let's, let's talk about chapter one. Uh, you talked about the ABCs of MLs. Could you talk about that? So... 
in order to have conversations that are really deep and really rich, we have to share the language. So, you know, um, there are so many different acronyms and so many different, you know, names. And in my focus with this is to focus on the evolution. Now, I have to give credit to the person that kind of initiated calling these students multilingual learners rather than English learners. And I have to say, like, I kind of embrace that because for us to say that all they're learning is English, that's really, you know, kind of uh, English centric of us, you know, so I think, um, you know, and in the past, I don't know if they did in Philadelphia, but in New Jersey, they called them limited English proficient. And that's kind of heart wrenching. You know, so, um, and in fact, they're still in New Jersey, like they moved away from that. They do call them English learners now. However, there is still some, you know, um, some documentation that has LEP on it, which is, you know, pretty horrific. So we talk about like the different ways that we can refer to the services, to the students, to the teachers and how they've evolved. And it's just to kind of get that common language so we're all speaking you know in in understandable um using understandable words well and i appreciate you talking about the concept of multilinguals where we're saying hey let's move away from english centric because uh, my new motto is that you can learn a new language without sacrificing the first ones and you know you leverage the first ones because multilingual not even just bilingual much like my student and, um, you know, and, and we talk about translanguaging, which is not just for language learners. Don't we do that all the time? You know, and, and again, we do that socially, we do that academically. And, and, and again, you're just kind of showing that you appreciate and celebrate, and it's not that you tolerate, you know? Let's talk about um, what should we do immediately upon arrival? So there is so many things that we need to do. Um, and they all kind of come down to two things, okay? Uh, they come down to safety and they come down to belonging. And um, I, as I was writing this and as I like kind of reflect upon what I wrote, I think about the work of um, Dr. Eileen Winokur and she works a ton with belonging. And, and I think, um, her work is really essential for all teachers of multilingual learners. And, and let's face it, all teachers of all learners to be, you know, kind of just reflecting upon what your environment is, what your classroom is, what your school district is, what your community is, and whether or not these people can find safely, a safety and belonging. And I think that's where, where we move along to. And, and, you find that space where we talk about like their assets and what they bring. And I think as long as you're not looking at these students or, or any students as what you're doing for them, you have to kind of focus on what they bring to your community and your classroom and, and those special gifts. Do you have any suggestions on how to help students feel like they belong? Well, again, it's it's about including the culture and the language. Um, there was 
a couple years ago, I was in fifth grade and we had a student who was not a um, still an English learner. So obviously they're multilingual learners throughout their life. But in terms of receiving services, did not receive ESL services. And he was from Albania. And what we would do is whenever we said, God bless you and forgive me, I don't even remember how to say it, but we would say it in his language or we would have, you know, the word of the day in someone else's language. So these little things that, and again, we have to take the focus away from tolerance and towards celebration and inclusion. Because when we say tolerance, there's like, there's something that we have to tolerate as if there's something negative. Right. But when we exactly. celebrate, we already see that it's something worth celebrating. And once they see that we appreciate that and, and we can learn from them, even if they're coming in as scythe or, or, or as, you know, um, feeling those feelings like the student I told you about, like once they realize people are learning from them, that kind of builds them up too. again, they're not doing us any favors. And we're not doing them any favors. It's kind of like, you know, where where you learn from each other and, and it just enriches the whole climate. You know, I should have asked you this first. How do you define newcomers? So, you know, um, with Ori, Orly Clapholt, so like we talk a lot about, you know, who are slight, who are newcomers. Now these, um, in, in and each state has like a different, you know, um, criteria for it. My newcomers were, were possibly new to the country. Uh, some of them might have taken stops along the way to get to us, but they were, you know, multilingual learners, um, some of them on their third language, some of them on their fourth language. Um, they would have to be... Um, you know, eligible for these services and um, new to us. Um, we've even had newcomers that came from Puerto Rico who had no English, but again, we kept them with our newcomer class to to kind of acclimate them mm -hmm. and, and to kind of evaluate what they need from us. So would you define a newcomer as a person new to the country or new to the district and uh, developing their English skills. Absolutely. And like I said, um, even the ones that, you know, that are coming from neighboring districts, if they were there a short time, you know, um, many of our local English learners or multilingual learners were born here. And especially when I was teaching in the elementary level. So, um, the newcomers would be the ones who came from other places. Yeah, and um, we even like a couple of years ago, I had a student who I thought came from Texas. However, she was only there on her way into the country. And I said, oh, but, but the, didn't you live in Texas? No, she, she actually lived in a center in Texas that was like kind of her, you know, her stopping point to get to New Jersey. So those stories, they're, they're so multi-leveled that there's so much that is so beyond the surface for us to learn. So when does, when does the U.S. consider a person no longer a newcomer? 
I don't know if it's like, if there's a specific amount of time, I know that there are conversations around life in terms of um, New Jersey, they say they must have missed more than two years of schooling and they must be a certain amount behind. Um, I think with the newcomers, since it may or may not have other specific services, I think it's kind of like um, up to the district, up to the school, up to the teacher perhaps. And the thing is, is that you really just wanna give the supports that the student needs. You really don't wanna to give too much support and you don't wanna to give too little support. So I think it's kind of that sliding scale of support. Let's move to chapter four and five now. Um, so, which are basically around culturally sustaining pedagogy. Can you talk about celebrating cultures and leveraging community languages? Okay, so it's, I think, again, with that belonging, you know, we're talking about belonging again, and you want to make sure that you're providing that um, culture that celebrates it. Um, rather than a new student being on your roster and you rolling your eyes and saying, what am I going to do with this kid? And he's reading, you know, he's, uh, he's only completed first grade and I teach fourth grade. Like, what am I going to do? No. You know, I think that's what it is. And I think it starts with the administration and it starts with the programs and you have to have programs that are school and district wise. You can't just have a program that is left up to the teacher, whether or not the teacher feels it's necessary. So you have to have like a these the community involvement. You have to um, make sure that these languages and these cultures, again, are not tolerated, that they're celebrated. Their culture is just as important as mine. Could you give examples of, uh, of when you've seen a school celebrate cultures and community languages in a way that's uh, authentic? Yeah, see, that's the thing, is that like these celebrations can't just be certain months out of the year. It has to be interwoven in the culture. So you know how I know if it is authentic? is you look at the sports teams, you look at the after-school clubs, you look at the National Honor Society, you look at these, and if our multilinguals are represented, you know, proportionally in terms of our population of the school, then you know that they are valued, that they are confident, that they are empowered. That's kind of the key. So, beyond Hispanic Heritage Month, beyond Black History Month, beyond these like celebratory months. Mm. If you look at the curriculum or the various curricula, and if you see, you know, other than the token multicultural books, if you see the teacher read alouds are culturally sensitive and that they don't have stereotypes of certain groups. If you see like even in the hallways, if you see welcome, that in, in signs that you know represent all of the languages of the community. You look at the classroom libraries, you look at the district libraries, school libraries, so many different ways. It, to see if it's integrating the curriculum as an integral part, not just um, like a token. surface, right, token surface part. Let's look at chapter six. Can you talk about making English comprehensible? Yeah, so a little bit controversial right now. <laughs> 
So, um, you know, people have been talking about like uh, comprehensible input and maybe it being condescending, you know, um, which I've been kind of reading a lot about. Um, and I agree with some of it. You know, the other thing is, though, as a teacher, and I could even say it, I'm going to own it. As somebody from New Jersey, I speak quickly. I speak with an accent. I use like certain regionalisms. Like, no, as a teacher, though, I have to just make sure that my students understand me, multilingual or not, you know? Um, and, and that's where I'm coming from when I talk about comprehensible input. I'm just saying, you know what? Um, I'm going to scaffold using my language. I'm going to perhaps explain other vocabulary. I'm going to expose them to contenary vocabulary and I'm going to help them learn it, but I'm not going to speak in a way that is not going to be accessible to him, to them. And that's the whole thing is access. You know, um, it's access when you're providing, you know, support in their native language it's or their dominant language it's access when you're trying to communicate with them you know and that would be where the comprehensible input comes in not that i'm speaking down or dumbing down anything because that's horrific just giving them access right so access equals equity that's what i think and I, when we make things clear and comprehensible when we make our messages well instructions clear it's actually kind and I don't, I, that's the first time I've ever heard someone talk about uh, the concept of comprehensible being controversial now. So people are thinking it's condescending. I, you know, and, and again, I mentioned it in the book and then I was, you know, obviously always looking and on Twitter and, and researching and yeah. So I've been seeing some of that commentary and I just said, um, I think it, it depends. If you're a condescending person, pretty much anything you do is going to be condescending. <laughs> but if you're empowering and, and access is is what you're, you know, working towards, then I think, you know, it's it's about the way you teach. Maybe some people are saying that they think comprehensible input equals watering down the curriculum. And we're saying, oh, no, I want my <laughs> students to learn about the Industrial Revolution. I'm just going to add more scaffolds to make sure they understand the industrial revolution when 100%. I speak, right? When there's an article, when there's a video. Let's look at chapter seven. I know many teachers feel like they have to help newcomers catch up, quote unquote, catch up. Can you talk about that? Yeah, that's all relative. So I, you know, as a teacher and as a mom, I really think that the students I serve, I, I need to meet their needs. I don't have to compare them to everyone else. So if I have, like last year, I had a student that came to me in seventh grade who read essentially on a first grade level. Okay, then I meet you where you are. We work together, we progress. And, and it doesn't matter to me that the child sitting next to you reads on a 10th grade level. And, and that's what catching up kind of like says to me is that this child has to ch catch up to someone else's achievements. And that's not necessarily what we're looking for. So catching up, no, meeting their unique needs, yes. And that doesn't mean, you know, and I know we talk a little bit about assessment, that doesn't mean that their assessments need to look like other people's. And, you know, again, we talk a lot about grades and stuff like that. So 
in order to assess, we're assessing growth and we're assessing progress. And that's, you know, what we're talking about with this focused on and feedback. So I have a section in the book that talks about mistakes. And again, that's something that's kind of controversial because I have been in English classes where the teacher will kind of correct everything that the kid says. And yes, I understand you, you know, we need corrections. I get it. But I know um, as a non-native speaker of a different language, if someone corrected me all the time, I really wouldn't speak. I wouldn't speak. I wouldn't write. I wouldn't produce the language because I don't want that feeling that I'm not doing anything right. So with the feedback, with, you know, um, the, the corrections, maybe the corrections have to be the objective for the day. And maybe if you're making mistakes on what I'm actually teaching you, I'm going to correct. Other than that, maybe I'll let it go. If I understand you, isn't that the point of communication? And a lot of times, the more exposure they get to the language, they'll make those corrections themselves. That's kind of more natural language learning. So you're redefining catch up when you say, when you when teachers are saying I want to help these this kid catch up. There's so much that the student has to do to catch up. We say let's meet them where they are. Meet them where they are. Progress. Feedback. Growth. Right. It's more positive that way. Yeah, for sure. You were talking about assessment, so that's your chapter eight. Can you talk about that? Mm -hmm. What does assessment look like for newcomers? So again, um, when newcomers first come, I like to get a writing sample. And again, I'm not going to worry about like in, in probably in their native language, maybe a mixture, whatever it is that they would like to write. And to be honest, um, sometimes it's a drawing sample in middle school, and, and that's acceptable. So um, I just want to kind of give them the opportunity to share their voice. Now, a lot of times people, you know, want to hear their story. Maybe they want to share it. Maybe they don't. And either way is okay. Um, so with assessment, I focus on the growth. So if maybe two months later, they do a different writing, you know, assessment, and I'm comparing the two, and, and I see perhaps maybe they were, you know, in their native language, maybe then they were writing with more detail. Maybe they added an English word or two. Maybe they followed the directions a little bit uh, more closely. That's where the assessment is for these students, because if I'm assessing them on eighth grade science standards, when, yeah, I could translate everything, but maybe they don't know that vocabulary in their native language. So that's not going to help. So we kind of have to really reassess how we're providing that access and equity. And, and that would be like assessing ourselves and how we assess them. Yeah, assessment is always the, um, a really difficult part of when we're thinking about newcomers. So thank you for talking about that. Let's look at chapter nine. Can we talk about parents um, and what significant role can they play in educating newcomers? So um, I don't know. I don't know anybody who has moved from one country to another, and, and you could certainly address this, Tan, better than I, <laughs> but without some um, stress and, and possibly upheaval. And, and if you're bringing a whole family with you, like that's, there's a lot of things um, as a family 
that needs to fall into place for you to kind of like exhale, right? So um, I have heard uh, teachers say, you know what, those families never come to conferences. Those families, you know, um, don't read to their children at night. Those, and, and you have to understand that when a family is in turmoil or a family is stressed, there is a toll that is taken on the children. And that's what we'll see in the classroom. So we have to, we have to express, we have to understand that there's no judgment. There's no judgment that perhaps you moved your family to a different place. There's no judgment that maybe you're not settled right now. There's no judgment that maybe you're working around the clock to put food on the table, that maybe you can't come to the school functions. Maybe there's no judgment that you don't have books in the house. Maybe there's no judgment that you may not be literate. So these people need just as much support as the students do that sit in our classroom. And you know what? We need to express to the students that we appreciate their family and that their experiences are valuable and they might need help navigating their new community. And that's where we need to reach out as well. You know, um, maybe free and reduced lunch. Maybe there's a clinic that would be appropriate for their needs. Maybe there's social, emotional, mental health issues that we can support them with. So I think rather than judging these families, I think figuring out how we can support them right. is where we need to be. Right. Thinking about, because all parents want the best for their children. And we just have to see in a different way, their engagement doesn't mean, the lack of engagement, or we, we, we think quote unquote. Our perception. Right, our perception. Right? We don't understand the context that's happening. Because I know my mom really cared about uh, my schooling, but she, in from her Vietnamese culture, she left all of the instruction up to the teacher because that is a form of respect. And if you come Absolutely. to school, it's a form of uh, disrespect and to challenge. And she said, no, I would never do that. I only come when uh, there are conferences. Uh, I only come when I'm needed, but I trust in the teachers and that's a way of uh, showing respect. And so we just have to see parent engagement in a different way. And we have to realize that parents are teaching kids, their kids at home in a way that we're not recognizing. Absolutely. There's so much more to learn than books. Right. Not that they're not important, <laughs> but you know, how much more in our lives do we learn that are outside of the school? Right. Let's talk about the last chapter. Um, you ended with the whole child. Can you talk about that? So we mentioned this very briefly, like, again, the whole child has to do with like their families and social, emotional, mental health and, and even friendships and culture and language. And if we, um, it's like, I don't know if you've heard this when you were younger, like, you know, or, or maybe just, you know, studying education. Um, I teach social studies. No, I teach children. You know, so again, like meeting their needs. Now I'm not an expert on social, emotional, mental health, but I do know about the belonging and I do know about friendships and I know about supporting and I know about smiling and saying, I'm glad you're here and, and, and things like that. And that would be where the whole child comes in. So there's more to teaching multilingual learners than what's in the curriculum. And maybe 
this stuff should be in the curriculum. Should be in teacher training for sure. And that's where I am now. And what is the one thing that you hope that your, your pre-service teachers get away with, I mean, take away with from your course? That it, it's access and inclusion, you know? And again, like a lot of times inclusion, people think right away, students with IEPs. And, and it, actually, it absolutely includes those students. But we have to, you know, um, think of all the different populations that we'll have in our classes. And I really want to empower them. And I want them to know about professional development. And I want to know about empowering themselves to empower the students and, and just kind of um, connecting with other educators who are, you know, like Carly says, Carly says, I light that fire. That's what you've got to do. Well, I think the fire has been lit from this podcast. I can tell you, tell your fire is lit. Let's end the podcast with traffic light teaching. So it, red light is something that you ask teachers to stop doing in terms of working with newcomers. Yellow light is uh, start doing and green light is keep doing. Okay, so red light. Stop thinking that just because they might have missed education that they haven't learned. Stop that. Um, yellow light, start, um, start going on Twitter, start connecting with other, you know, educators. Like, you know, a lot of times the teachers, the ESL teachers and the teachers of multilingual learners, they might be on an island to themselves in their district, or they might be spread so thin that they don't have time to, um, connect with their colleagues during the day. So, Take what you're learning and share it and, and research and find out what's, what else is out there. And um, the go. Keep going. Keep get going. yourself empowered. Get your students empowered. Celebrate them. Find joy in your students, no matter what they bring to the table. It's valuable. Well, Dr. Denise Furlong, thank you again. I hope that... Uh, we started with a metaphor in the beginning of the podcast talking about sowing seeds instead of counting the harvest. So thank you today for sowing seeds with your book and giving newcomers, giving us an opportunity to hear the voices of newcomers in a different way. Thank you so much. And, and I just feel like, you know, um, thank you for just engaging with me on this. Before we recap this episode, I have a favor and an invitation. My favor is to ask you to please review this podcast if you found it valuable so that teachers like you become inspired and informed in their advocacy work. My invitation is for you to enroll in my scaffolding learning or teacher collaboration courses. I've taken the principles that I've learned from experts in the field. I've applied them to my classes. I kept the things that worked and I'm sharing all of them in these courses. I hope you consider enrolling. Now onto our recap. I don't remember what it was like for me to be a newcomer to my school. There was no distinct vivid memories, but there was a vague feeling of being loved, feeling safe, and feeling cared for. After 30 years, this is the only thing I remember from my kindergarten teacher. 
Dr. Furlong reminds us that in order for us to teach newcomers like me when I came to the U.S., we first must ensure that they feel safe and loved. 30 years from now, they'll remember that the most. In the next podcast, we'll talk to Dr. Holly Porter, who helped her district move from 100% pullout to 100% co-teaching. Thank you for listening. I'll see you soon. Be safe and be rooted in peace. It's your turn to play Traffic Light Teaching. Tweet at me either your red, yellow, or green light from this particular episode. Your